John 9, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked How could a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they asked for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It's God's word to us tonight. May he bless it to our hearts and our lives. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at a portion of chapter 8 through the lens of what Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Something that you don't almost catch, at least I didn't, on a first reading of chapter 9, is that Jesus also says, I am the light of the world here, in verse 5. If you remember a bit of John 7 and 8, you come to this chapter, and it's, it's kind of refreshing in a sense. And it's because chapters 7 and 8 were so filled with this intense dialogue and back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. Though 7 and 8 were kind of tough going, I think we really came to some wonderful and practical truths as we dug into it. Now, though, we've got some action. A miracle A blind beggar sees, Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud with his saliva, he puts it on the man's eyes. This is more exciting stuff than the dialogue between the Pharisees, Pharisees arguing with Jesus. Jesus tells the man to wash his eyes in a pool, he does, he's healed, he goes home. His neighbors are like, is this the guy who used to beg? Some are like, no way. His whole countenance must have changed from receiving sight because they don't even recognize him. And he says, yeah, I'm the guy. They ask what happened. He tells them. And then the Pharisees come in and investigate the healing. The Sanhedrin, that was really the ruling religious party of Israel, they would delegate a group of Pharisees for stuff just like this. So what was going on here, this was a formal examination. They were out to see if he believed in this Jesus, and if he did, he'd be in big trouble. During the examination, the healed man didn't say he believed in Jesus just yet. That happens later, at the very end of the chapter. But in verse 17... He tells them that he thinks Jesus is a prophet and a miracle worker in verse 32. And he also tells them that he thinks he did this miracle only through the power of God, verse 33. Well, that was enough for the Pharisees. Even though he didn't say he believed in Jesus, that was enough. In verse 34, they throw him out. And it's not like they just threw him out of the house or the room. They excommunicated him. Earlier in the chapter, it talks about being thrown out of the synagogue. That's exactly what they did. They excommunicated him. They, they said, 
he was lost, no longer part of the people of God. At the end of the chapter, the healed man meets Jesus again and believes him and worships him. This is um, the sixth of only seven miracles in John. John's a lengthy gospel, at least as long as the others, but he only has seven miracles. It tells us that John was very selective in the material from Jesus' life that he chose to include. And you remember his goal, right? Chapter 20, verse 13. He's writing so that people would believe in Jesus. And so we have to ask, what is this passage telling us about faith? What's it telling us about belief? Because that's what John is after, that we would believe. So we know if he's only picked seven miracles, they are for that purpose. And certainly, John is using this miracle to tell us that Jesus not only can heal people physically, but he can make the spiritually blind see. I mentioned that Jesus says he's the light of the world right before this miracle, and he also said it in the last chapter. A.W. Pink is someone who has a great study on the Gospel of John, and he shows that a comparison between chapter 8 and 9 is very enlightening, no pun intended. In chapter 8, the light was making the people run And the people hated Jesus, right? Here, the light is drawing someone to him. So, two different things in each of the chapters. And you know, if you think about light just every day, light has those two ways of functioning. Imagine if you take a large, flat stone, like one that's used for a footpath in your yard, it's been there for years. What happens if you flip it over and you expose what's under there in the dark, in the damp, in the coolness? What, if you, what happens when you expose all that to the light? Well, when you flip it over, you're going to see all kinds of bugs and worms and centipedes and millipedes. And then what does that exposure to the light do? It drives them away. They scurry back into the ground. They're back into the coolness, back into the darkness. That's what the light of the world is doing in chapter 8. They can't take it. Remember, Jesus calls them the children of the devil. The children of the devil can't stand the light of day. Their deeds of darkness are exposed. On the other hand... Light also makes things grow and thrive. Plants need the light to be healthy and bear fruit. And in chapter 9, we see after people reject the light of the world in chapter 8, now the light of the world goes and he starts to gather in people who will receive him, like this blind beggar. I want to show you just... Because we're going through the book, we were in chapter 8. I want to show you some of the comparisons between the, cha- the chapters. The first one, Christ exposes the darkness. The second, Christ communicates sight. 
Also, light is despised and rejected in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, light is received and worshipped. In chapter 8, remember the end of the chapter, the Jews stoop and pick up stones to hurt Jesus. Well, in chapter 9, Jesus stoops to make healing clay for this man. In chapter 8, Jesus hides from the Jews in chapter 9, he reveals himself to the beggar. In chapter 8, we see people in whom the word of God has no place. Jesus says that again and again. In chapter 9, now we've got someone who immediately responds to the word of Jesus. In chapter 8, in the temple courts, Jesus is called demon-possessed. Chapter 9, outside the temple now, Jesus is owned and received as Lord. And then also in chapter 8, the light is testing, coming before people. It's testing human responsibility. And how do, does human responsibility respond? Human responsibility fails miserably and rejects Jesus. In chapter 9, the light acts in sovereign grace after human responsibility has failed. And, of course, the sovereign grace of God succeeds. What this miracle especially shows us is how the light penetrates the darkness. The light penetrates someone living in darkness. And it's a picture of all people on their own. The blind beggar is a picture of all of us blind in our sin. He couldn't see Jesus, although Jesus could see him. This guy could not even appreciate the light, could he? He couldn't appreciate it because he never even had it. He was born blind. He would have known he was missing something big in life. He knew he was blind but he couldn't even totally appreciate what he was missing, like someone who once had sight and then went blind. The other thing about this guy, he wasn't even praying for or asking for sight. He was a beggar, but he wasn't begging for his sight. That is how hopeless his situation was. Why would he ask for something that in a million years he never guessed could ever happen? All of that is meant to be a picture of us, of people in the darkness of their sin. Without Jesus, they don't even know what they're missing. They don't think life can get any better than it is. And in the midst of that comes the light of the world. And, and I want to look with you for the rest of our time at how the light of the world pierces the darkness. I want to see how he does it here so he can pierce your darkness and my darkness and that so he can bring light through us to others in darkness. The light of the world, first of all, is unnervingly persistent in the penetration of darkness. Check this out. You remember last week how things ended in chapter 8. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The people were so furious at Jesus identifying himself with God that they picked up stones to stone him. This is an intense situation. They are trying to kill Jesus. 
This is serious. This is dangerous. Think of how your blood would be pumping just from the back and forth of the conversation, the hostile words of these Jewish people. But then, even more, they pick up stones to throw. And then Jesus slips away. What does he do? Does he run to the other side of town as fast as he can to escape his pursuers? Does he find a room or a store to slip into and hide and take some time to calm down and catch his breath? No. There's no break in what happens between the stones, the people with stones, to now. He turns the corner after all this and stops to heal a man. He's doing exactly the sort of thing his enemies hated him for and what they wanted to kill him for. Jesus was being stoned, but it does not deter him one little bit. He goes right on with his task of finding the hurting and the lost. Anybody else would be looking over their shoulder as we ran away and got out of there, got as far away as we could, but his eye is on someone in need. He's calm, he's self-possessed, he disregards his enemies and their hatred, as one commentator puts it. So this is a picture of the sovereign electing, purposeful love of our God. Because we just learned in chapter 8 that Jesus is God after all. Nothing can stop him. What God wants, God gets, as a famous theologian used to put it. Nothing and no one will prevent the Lord from finding his lost child. And that's as true for you and me and all God's children today as it was for this guy then. You need to know that that's how God is with you, too. That's how God has worked in your life. He zeroed in on you. He sought you out. He picked you up. He has persistently worked in all the circumstances of your life so that you would come to know him. He does not get deterred. If God wants you, he gets you. Nothing gets in his way. Not circumstances of this world, not other people, not even your own stubborn will can get in the way of God. That's how much he loves you. You know what we call that? We call that God's irresistible grace. We see it here with the blind beggar. That's how he's worked in your life to make you come to this point in your life of of serving the Lord and acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. Secondly, the light of the world uses unexpected means. Unexpected means. Jesus does something really bizarre here. He spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva, and he puts that grossness on the man's eyes. Why did he do that? What's going on here? Was it to make him more thoroughly blind and really show his power? Was it to make use of what some people have thought were the healing powers of our saliva? Was it maybe to symbolize that 
man was from the dust of the earth and that he, the creator of light, could create light here just as surely as he did at the beginning of time, as John tells us in John 1. Those are interesting ideas. I'm not sure if any of those are right. I I agree with those who say the point is the unexpectedness of the means Jesus uses to heal the blind man. And I think it's pointing us to the unexpected means by which we get spiritual sight, by which we get faith. How how does that happen? What does God use to save people in the darkness? Well, he uses the cross, right? What Paul calls foolishness to the world. That's the most unexpected thing ever, that God would save his people through the sacrificial death of his son, that our life would come through Jesus' death, that he was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would never be forsaken by God that we would be adopted as his children and heirs through the only begotten son, death. That he became a curse to fill us with his blessing. That he was humbled and brought low so that God would raise us up out of our sin. That light would be brought to the world through the darkest day in history, the death of Jesus, the perfect one. All of that is so unusual, it's so unexpected. Just around the corner in the Gospel of John, Jesus will be clearly heading to the cross. That was his ultimate focus and mission. These unexpected, humble means here in our text, I believe they're a pointer to the unexpected way of all, the most unexpected way of all, that light penetrated the darkness. And that's in the cross, the instrument of salvation that all of us needs. Finally tonight, the light of the world expects surprisingly little. In his calling, this blind beggar, picture of all of us, Jesus expects surprisingly little from this guy. Jesus gives the man a command, go wash in the pool of Siloam. There must be some significance in going to this pool because John tells us the name and that it means sent. So maybe he's showing, it's showing that Jesus was sent by the Father. Also, the waters of Siloam, they flow from down from the temple hill and Even in the Old Testament, those waters were seen as symbolic of the spiritual blessings which come from the Lord. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's it. And you know what? The man didn't question Jesus. He didn't hesitate. He went, he washed, and he could see. And here's the deal. The command for you and me to be cleansed spiritually is that clear too. It's that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. That's all. 
There's not a whole list of things. There aren't all kinds of strings attached in a world where you know there are always strings attached. In a world where nothing comes for free, where stuff always gets complicated, this is surprisingly different. Just believe. Just follow Jesus. I wonder if we don't make the Christian life too complicated sometimes. We agonize, we worry, am I doing everything just right? Am I saved? What about my doubts? What about this or that theological matter? I don't feel like I know as much as I could or should. Shouldn't I be sharing my faith more with non-believers? There's a time and a place for all of those things. And yes, we should examine our hearts. We should think and pray and work on how we can obey better and know God more. Sure. Yeah, no question. But let's not complicate things where Jesus doesn't. Don't set up barriers to your own assurance. Don't set up roadblocks to other people whether there are other people here in church or other people out there, don't set up roadblocks when the way is free and clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's it. That's it. That's it. As the chapter goes on, we see the Pharisees continuing to be unresponsive and reject. Jesus And Jesus talks about coming into the world so the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. So some will not see this. Some will not get it. Some will not obey the simple command. Some will reject the invitation. So the command is simple, but you still have to follow it and obey and some choose to disobey. But not this beggar today. He goes to that pool. And then later in the chapter, Jesus says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he responds, Lord, I believe. And then the healed man worshipped Jesus. May each one of us be like the blind beggar. Don't make it too complicated. Jesus doesn't. Just go wash in the pool of Siloam. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Yes, sir, he says, and he goes, and his darkness is lifted. And Jesus calls you tonight to just believe, just follow him. That's it? Yeah, that's it. It's surprisingly simple, huh? Just obey, just respond, follow him, be cleansed. The blindness will disappear. The darkness in your soul can be pierced with the light of the world. And oh, the wonders you will see when you see life now. Life lived for God's glory. Opportunities to serve. Opportunities to grow in Jesus. You'll see God at work in our world, in people's lives, in your own life, in our church. This is how the light penetrates the darkness, both in your life 
and in the life of all those we are praying for and working with who we want to see the light to. Amen.